Welcome to episode 7 of Under Our Feet. We've been working our way through geologic time in the Badger State. On today's stop, we reveal the origin of that nickname, the Badger. As a teaser, it has very little to do with the ferocious animal, but a lot to do with geology and the first white settlers of the southwest part of the state. But before we get there, here's our regular reminder to think about supporting the show. The first and most direct way is to give to the podcast on Patreon. There's a link at uofpod.org. Thanks so much to M. Badu and Ethan Parrish, our most recent patrons. They'll each be getting an Under Our Feet bumper sticker that you can only get on Patreon. Also, all of the support that I got in November and everything I get in December, half of it's going to honor the Earth, who are working to protect the critical wild rice-bearing waters of northern Minnesota. And they're standing up for indigenous rights and land. Thanks to all who helped out. You, listener, you can join that number of patrons. There's a link at uofpod.org. Another way you can help out, if you're enjoying the show, is to take a minute and tell a friend or share it on social media. Did you know you can follow us on Twitter at uofpod? You can also leave a rating or review wherever you listen. Here's our latest review from Lestron. Lestron says, For history nerds too, I'm a historian, not a scientist, but Rudy provides engaging explanations for how Wisconsin geology has impacted both historic and current events. The episodes are both understandable and relevant to a geology newbie. I'm loving all the historical anecdotes. Well, Lestron, you're in luck. Today's episode is going to be heavy on the history. Okay, so the story of the nickname of Wisconsin, the Badgers, which is also the mascot for the flagship university in Madison, And the story of our state mineral, Galena, is a story about lead. Lead gets a rightfully bad rap for its toxicity in our everyday lives, but it's a really useful material. It melts at low temperature, and it's soft and malleable. That makes it really easy to work with. It's also a useful material for batteries, which is by far the largest use of lead today. In fact, the vast majority of all car starter batteries, you know, the ones where you have to ask around a rest stop in Iowa for a jump when you accidentally leave the overhead light on while sleeping in your car on a road trip, those batteries, well, they work when a lead oxide, that's PBO2 for chemistry people, when a lead oxide interacts with hydrogen ions in a sulfuric acid solution to form water molecules. The energy released by that bond forming H2O creates a big discharge of energy, enough to start a car. But cars, especially ones with a battery start, were still a twinkle in Henry Ford's grandmother's eyes when the hunt for lead reshaped the landscape of southwest Wisconsin in the early 19th century. Back then, lead was mostly used for bullets, pipes, food and drink dishes, and cosmetics. Think about putting lead on your face and eating out of a lead bowl. Oof. And, you know, there was enough of it here in Wisconsin to spark a big mineral rush. Nothing quite so large as the iron and copper booms we talked about in the previous episodes, but still important enough to give us the nickname the Badger State, for reasons I'll explain a little bit later on. For now, though, on to the show and to the questions that I'm sure you all have. Like, what are the geologic origins of lead in southwest Wisconsin? And how did its presence shape the history of our state? All that and more in just a minute.
Welcome to Under Our Feet, where we explore the geologic forces and events that shape the world around us. I'm your host, Rudy Molinick, and you're listening to Season 1, The Geology of Wisconsin. Let's start with the geology of all this, which makes sense since the lead has to be there in the first place before any human history can revolve around it. As with any geologic story, there's a few different ideas out there for the origin of lead. To learn about them and the history of Wisconsin's lead mining, I spoke to Tom Hunt, and I'm an emeritus professor of the University of Wisconsin Platteville, and there I taught uh, reclamation, uh, reclamation sciences and soil science, and also uh, was lucky enough to start a, um, a minor program in environmental justice. So um, I also do some consulting these days, along with occasional uh, lecturing and scholarship and so forth. And, and I'm also uh, living the dream. I've got a, uh, I graze grass-fed organic beef in the summertime anyway. So uh, I have some cattle that uh, are here on my farm for summer camp. And Tom had a really interesting path to soil science, a path that I think explains his interdisciplinary approach to knowledge. You know, I started as a, uh, an art student and also psychology. Um, and, you know, I unfortunately had a little bit of a cynicism as a young guy, and, and that's a dangerous thing. It's, I don't think it's all that healthy, but uh, uh, art, um, even though I was able to sell a few pieces, I realized that maybe, um, you know, I was never going to be good enough to make a living at it. But uh, I got into clay and uh, ceramics and and uh, clay got me interested in soils and, you know, the two to one layer lattice silicate clays and the one to one layer lattice silicate clays and all that stuff. And the next thing you know, I'm studying soil science and loving the dickens out of it. And uh, you know, and if you've ever been in a soil pit, man, there's there's nature's art right there. I think it's important to hear about people's paths into their careers. It's almost always more interesting than you might guess, and it goes to show that anyone can do anything. It just takes finding something that gets you excited to work hard at. Anyways, a bit of a digression there. As I said, Tom told me about a few of the ideas about how lead got to southwest Wisconsin in the first place. There are theories abounding and some are better accepted than others, but, you know, the two leading are sort of uh, brines, mineral-rich brines that migrated under the Illinois basin from the Ozarkian region and Missouri, somewhere in that region. And these brines then uh, backfilled into the uh, folds, faults and crevices and so forth, um, fractures in, in the carbonate rock of the Driftless area. What's going on here? Let's start at the end of that story. So the rocks, carbonate rocks or limestone in southwest Wisconsin, the driftless area, are broken up underground with faults, folds, fractures, and caves. Like we learned in the wild rice episode and the mid-continent rift episode, and the caves episode, groundwater likes to flow along these breaks in the homogeneity of the rocks. At some point in the deep past when these rocks were far below ground, a visitor from the south came slinking along, traveling slowly through poor spaces and gaps in the rocks, all the way from Missouri. 
This visitor was a brine, which means it was water, but it had at least as much dissolved solids in it as it did water. Among those dissolved solids were lead and zinc, which made their way with the brines into the fractures of the limestone rocks of the Driftless area. Those minerals, having traveled from the Ozark area in Missouri, took a little rest break here in Wisconsin, and then, like many others, they decided they liked it and wanted to stay. But that's only one idea for how the lead and zinc got there. The other is that maybe there's a, a hydrothermal uh, influence uh, uh, pushing up from the deep Precambrian. So in this scenario, the lead and zinc didn't come from far away, but rather deep down below. The Precambrian are the oldest rocks at the bottom of the stack that starts at the surface and goes down through the Earth's crust. In this idea, something happening down there, deep, deep, deep below our feet, pushed up mineral-rich hydrothermal fluids that also worked their way into the cracks in the limestone rock up here. I think the, some combination of that is probably at work, but suffice it to say that the, that the lead pretty much solidified in the um, host carbonate rocks, the middle Ordovician, you know, and the rocks are about 450 million years old, but the lead, the lead deposits and zinc deposits below those are are much younger than that. But the through line, the thing we're pretty darn certain about. Water was, uh, uh, you know, under some kind of pressure, some sort of head uh, uh, brought the minerals in and, uh, and they backfilled, you know, the carbonate rocks. Maybe you've been to Cave of the Mounds, for example. Which, even if you haven't been to Cave of the Mounds, it's almost like you have since you listened to episode six. So holes in the rock, aka caves, those were a prime place that lead might fill in. Anyways, back to Tom. Or some others, you know, it's basically a dissolution cave where, uh, where you know, the, the material through rainwater or some other weak acid has dissolved <clears throat> these, these uh, holes. And there's plenty of fracture and folding. The, that whole area is, um, is folded. Uh, and then we've got this uh, arch, the Wisconsin Arch, which uh, is an uplift feature that runs north and south through the state. And so there, there's also a rock deformation and hence it fractures. And in those areas and, and um, you know, those fractures and faults and, and crevices, the, uh, the lead was deposited. And below that is the zinc primarily. So. And as, as, as a result of erosion, you know, uh, back in the day when the uh, Europeans first came to this country, you know, there was actual uh, surface deposits of, of lead float right on top of the ground. To summarize, the sequence of events so far is this. From deep underground or far away, or maybe some combination of both, water chock full of lead and zinc made its way to the carbonate rocks of southwest Wisconsin, there, that water found cavities, be it in caves or structural fractures, and deposited the minerals that it carried. Then, geology's slow, constant force of erosion gradually tore away the overlying rocks, exposing lead at the surface so that when early Europeans came, they didn't even have to dig it out. But the history of lead in Wisconsin certainly doesn't start there. In fact, lead had been used by the indigenous people of the area for generations. As is often the story with mineral rushes, once the Euro-Americans realized there was something valuable here, the presence of the indigenous people suddenly mattered very little, 
except when they were in a position to give something of value to the settlers. So while the indigenous people, in particular the Ho-Chunk, Sauk, and Kickapoo, while they certainly weren't extracting on an industrial scale like the Euro-Americans to come, they definitely used and were aware of lead. Because of how malleable and workable it is, lead had been used as weights on fishing nets, as jewelry, and in sacred or religious objects. So they knew where to find it. And when early explorers and prospectors came calling? You know, as early as, like, you know, 1690 or something like that, circa, Perot, you know, this uh, 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 Frenchman was paddling in the area looking for resources of all kinds, you know, and, and lead was of particular importance to him for the, for the strategic value of it alone. But, you know, after, there were let's say, preferred explorers among the natives, and they showed them where the lead deposits were and also worked hand in glove with them. But the, the uh, natives were trading lead on the, uh, the St. Louis market early on, uh, you know, in the you know, early 1800s, late 1700s. So some favored traders got the inside scoop from the indigenous people of the area, and when the boom began, they had a leg up on the competition. Probably after, um, you know, Lewis and Clark expedition, you know, a decade or two later is when commercial mining really started in Wisconsin. Talking, you know, 1820s, you know, Jesse Schultz, for example, Julian Dubuque, uh, just across the river, uh, Grashit, uh, some of these folks were uh, in cahoots and they were favored traders or explorers. And so they, began mining and, you know, so we got a town like Schulzburg that came out of that deal. Uh, and so that was, that was the beginning of it. And, and, and then, you know, just across the border is a little town called Galena, Illinois. And so that town is the namesake of the mineral. And so it was, that's when it started happening. And as soon as, you know, about just after the mid 1820s or so, there was a rush a uh, significant lead rush to Wisconsin and the population boomed uh, from several hundred to, you know, like 10,000 people in just a very short amount of time, which is a huge amount of people in, in, in that time period when you think about the core of discovery going off into the unknown. But uh, so the Northwest Territory, as it were, uh, the lead brought all kinds of folks. And uh, so it really settled the territory and helped um, bring statehood to Wisconsin as part of that. But of course, it wasn't all a happy story of working together between settlers and the natives of the area. It never is. Uh, you can imagine with, with the influx of white settlers and uh, prospectors and miners and, and all the accoutrements that come with that, um, that this puts some pressure on um, you know the uh, native lands and territories, and you know the Ho Chunk and the Sauk and the Fox and so forth uh, said, well, you know, hey, these are these are our lands, these are our minerals, and uh, we're trading, and we've had agreements with these uh, other traders that we trust, and and uh, and now all of a sudden these lands are are you know, the, the, the U.S. Uh, government and the military, the Bureau of Ordnance is in play. And so, you know, treaties are hastened and there are issues, you know, so uh, 
Um, you know, Black Hawk was, uh, was resisting this. He didn't want his territorial lands uh, taken over through cessation by treaty. And so, you know, that was the Black Hawk War. And, and you know, as I, if my history is correct, I think Abe Lincoln was a lieutenant in that army. So it's important to acknowledge here that there are always consequences and downsides in these stories that we often valorize. That's especially true with stories of settlement and expansion in this stage of U.S. history. In Wisconsin, the presence of lead hastened and intensified this process in the early 19th century. But once the rush was on, lead was instrumental in bringing people and status to Wisconsin. And it's a big part of our history, even if it doesn't get much play today. In fact, Wisconsin state mineral is one that Tom mentioned, galena. That's a lead sulfide, so a lead atom and a sulfur atom bonded together. When you go through a list of people involved in this lead rush looking for this mineral, it's kind of a who's who of Wisconsin's historical figures. Uh, Governor Dodge, uh, you know, was also a big player in that, and... um, Oh, you know, I live on the farm of James Morrison, who was one of the early uh, settlers and speculators and miners. And this land that I live on was one of the early deeds, 1835, uh, platted from the U.S. Uh, government. And and by the way, James Morrison went on to build the first capital at Madison. So and also sold the land for Mount Horeb and and so on and so forth, and was a buddy of, of Brigham. And That's the same Brigham family you might remember from the last episode, the family who owned the land where Cave of the Mounds was found over a hundred years later in 1939. Anyways. You know, these guys were entrepreneurs and speculators and did anything and everything to scrap and save and make money and develop the, uh, the countryside and the politic and the culture, at least from the, the white uh, settler standpoint. But not all the miners ended up as wealthy and upstanding citizens. Again, it would depend on on a particular miner and it'd be kind of a bell-shaped curve. You could have some scruffy ruffians who were, you know, just out to um, take advantage of being opportunist, you know, and nothing against that, but that's the way they were working. There were others who were more pragmatic, who put their ducks in a row, got things lined up with uh, natives and others. And of course, there was a, you know, some sort of a permitting system with a land agent and with a Bureau of Ordinance and so forth. So like, for example, my fellow here, Morrison, is one, one example. He put in a smelter, a small smelter, and that way he, he had a network of miners who had their claims and were developing would bring the lead to him. So he would add value by virtue of smelting and then getting that lead to market, helping them. Uh, So uh, he understood that system. There were other just pick and shovel people who were out, uh, you know, buying a little or uh, getting access to a claim, paying for it, and then they had to develop it Let's focus on the left end of Tom's bell-shaped curve, those scruffy ruffians, those pick-and-shovel people, in the early days of the rush. Those are the sorts of people who originated the nickname for our state and the beloved mascot, Bucky, of the University of Wisconsin at Madison. So now, this is the moment you all tuned in for, I'm sure, 
and I hope you don't turn off your radio right after this, but here is the story of the badger. Yeah, so there were few people and select people initially, and then with word that lead was easy to find that you could just uh, go through the fields and pick it up off the surface, uh, an influx of people uh, flooded the area. And so people would come prepared and people would come unprepared and they would come in the spring and they would come in the fall. And if uh, you've ever been through a severe Wisconsin winter, uh, you know that uh, there would be an opportunity where people, if they were going to survive uh, and didn't have time for shelter, they could shelter in the side of a hill or in, you know, right in the mine that they might be working. And uh, so uh, that's the derivation that, you know, in some of these mines, as I mentioned, with all the digging going on and the spoil piles around look like badger workings. And so uh, the nickname or the moniker badger uh, was given to them and it stuck, you know, hence it's the uh, nickname, um, you know, for the state. And, uh, and fortunately, uh, you know, the, some of the holes were called sucker holes that didn't yield uh, lead. And so we're very lucky uh, that we didn't get the moniker sucker, like I guess other the neighboring state might have that one, I'm not sure. But uh, so that, that's it. And some of the badger holes were a little fancier than others. They uh, had sills and doors and, and so forth. And people were able to fend for themselves pretty well in kind of an earth shelter. But others were, you know, uh, tooth and nail to survive the winter. So it was a pretty hard scrabble situation. Let's dig into that a bit. What life and work was like for a lead miner in the first half of the 19th century here in southwest Wisconsin? The early lead days would be to either have something uh, like a known deposit, this float lead that you could see on the surface, and, and then dig that out to the extent you could. And so they would move soil or spoil as little as possible. And so that would typically create a concentric spoil pile around your lead base. And then uh, because of the heaviness of lead, uh, you know, you wanted to drive the sulfur off. You didn't want any external material. You wanted it to be as pure as possible. So they build these little lasagna type uh, furnaces uh, to pile the lead on and then dig a, uh, a small pit under that concave. And so the lead would melt into that, into a um, flat that maybe was in the neighborhood of 60 to 90 pounds, something that a person, I don't know the stature of people in those days tended to be a little slighter, smaller than we are today. But, but anyway, that's, they could probably lift more than that. But if you're doing that all day, you don't want to wear yourself out. But, and also putting those on a wagon, you know, you, that would add up in terms of weight in a hurry. So you, you had to be careful about how much you'd load. But um, so you, anyway, you have these concentric uh, holes, or mounds, so it would look like, uh, uh, use a uh, example of an explosive, like a hand grenade, you know, with spoil piled up all around it, is probably how it, how it looked. And so if there were lots of float lead or lead, these gash vein deposits of lead 
And even though it's spelled the same, they'd follow a lead <laughs> uh, wherever the lead would take them, <laughs> lead and lead. But anyway, uh, so you could have a smattering of these across the landscape. And so it could look like a pockmark, like bombs going off all over the place would be the visual of it. And then if you had like a crevice mine that had more lead in it, you could see that that could be worked and it would look like a rectangular box in the ground. And they would mine down to, you know, the water level essentially if the lead was holding and until the Cornish people brought the pumps over. This is a common theme in mining stories. People from Cornwall who have been mining copper and iron since 2000 BCE find their way to mining booms all over the world, and then they bring technologies and techniques with them. They were often the mining captains in the underground copper mines up north. All right, so let's go through a bit how this mining developed. There's another sort of universal story here. Tom's going to go through this with detail, but the main arc should sound familiar. At first, individuals and small groups come in and try to strike it rich. Many of them didn't. Over time, that wealth and power that comes from the mineral gets concentrated, and smaller mines can't compete with the resources of the big ones. It almost always seems to happen that way. Here, it's no different. When it started, it was primitive because there was lead right at the surface. I mean, you could walk across a field and stub your toe on lead, or you could a tree could tip over, and all of a sudden you'd say, oh, there's lead there, you know? And so uh, that was pretty exciting for them. Then there were also the sucker holes, and uh, those were dead ends where people were working their claims and they just didn't, they might have been side by side with somebody who was working and finding lead and they just weren't. Uh, so they'd go home disappointed wherever home was. And, um, and then there would be some people who would find some and feel elated and it would peter out. And then there would be some who would find lead and lead would be get lead and they'd follow the lead. But it was also by nature of the deposit, so these dispersed small deposits. But let me tell you, that didn't last long because it became concentrated and centralized very quickly. And so, um, one of like in the 18, say 40s, or when people started dispersing to California or to the Iron Country or to uh, uh, to the Copper Country, uh, that was when the the pickings. Uh, if I can use a term like that, were really slowing down. And so you had to have, it wasn't just dumb luck that you could go out and find lead and cash in. And so what happened then is it, it got more complicated, you know, so the, the permits were more expensive and the regulations were a little more restrictive and the investment, uh, you know, to de development capital was it was quite a bit more costly. And then there were these really erratic uh, swings in the market of the metal, as you might imagine. And so if you go to the, by the way, the multiplier effect with the storekeepers and, and uh, the general merchandise and supplies and equipment and food and all of that, prices on that would rise and fall as well and more than likely just rise. So if you got a debt again to the company store, you were, you know, you were indentured almost. And that that would create a the the typical boom bust labor management type of scenario here as well, although it wouldn't be as, as severe as like Montana or, 
or the coal fields of Appalachia or something like that. But believe me, it was here even in, in those early days. To quote the title of one of my favorite books from when I was a kid, that was then, this is now. Okay, a bit of a non sequitur here, but that was then, this is now was S.E. Hinton's follow-up to The Outsiders, which I think was much more popular and often assigned reading in sort of middle school level. Um, and that book detailed the struggles between the greasers and the soches. And that was then, this is now, hippies get introduced. And amongst lots of fighting and even some killing, one of the main characters has a bad overdose trip on LSD that I remember being the emotional peak of the story. I wonder if my parents knew what was in that book. I was in early middle school when I read these. Anyway, I know you don't come here for me to reminisce about books I used to read 20 years ago. You're here for geology and the lasting impact that geologic forces and events have on the world we live in today. And so we've gone over the importance of the early days of lead in Wisconsin. That was then. Now, let's talk about now. A bit about the lasting effects of all that mining today. Most of the, uh, the relics and remnants of mining are pretty hard to see unless a person is trained in reading the landscape. And there are uh, locals will know exactly where certain things are and they'll see uh, spoil piles and so forth. But a lot of the waste rock was left uh, underground or put back. Uh, any spoil piles today, uh, uh, waste rock piles, a lot of them have been crushed because they're uh, good quality carbonate rock. And so they've been used for road building or seal coating or what have you. There are some old tailings, uh, you know, highly, uh, they're, they're carbonate tailings. And some of those pre-law tailings are just scattered across the countryside. And if you drive, take a drive through, oh, let's say an old town like New Diggins, Diggings, which was one of the early towns, you can find uh, pastures and stuff that, that are denuded. They don't really have grass on them. And materials run into the stream, but that system is more or less stabilized over time, and they're not particularly pollutive, uh, although that could be argued in certain cases they might be. And then some of the waste, like uh, the roaster waste, which were part of the zinc operations, uh, were highly pollutive. They were very acidic, and so you get uh, acid rock drainage from those. I mean, you were talking to the tune of 2.1 pH, you know, and if those were to go into a stream, and here was the other problem is this wasn't a level, a stable level of pH, it would rise and fall. So if you got any critters uh, living in the stream, if they had uh, an influx of runoff that had that material in it, it could drop the pH dramatically quickly and kill anything there. So uh, we know that, that over time, Certain species can acclimatize, um, you know, to chronic conditions that might otherwise kill wildlife, but uh, they can adjust to it. And I'm not suggesting that that's a good thing or not. It's just the way things are in nature. Then, you know, we have um, like right outside Dodgeville at one of the interchanges to the expressway are these uh, old rock piles from mining. And I've often thought we ought to have a state park or a wayside uh, that shows those off because they're rapidly disappearing and we won't see them anymore. And there are a few old mine buildings around. 
uh, that we see. Museums have captured some of it, uh, like the Pendarvis area in Mineral Point is a good example of the culture and the mines, and they preserved the Merry Christmas mine. And then the, probably the one of the best is the Platteville Mining Museum there in Rollo Jameson Museum. It uh, actually has an underground mine that you can go to. And if you're looking for a quaint experience that really feels like the real deal, uh, you can go to the Schulzberg uh, Mining Museum and they have a very steep wooden stairway down to a mine that you have to turn sideways to get through. And that would really give you a, a sense. And I think there's even a speck of, uh, of lead left in that particular little museum mine. So I know I'm going to need to get down to the Rollo Jameson Mining Museum down in Platteville. You should too. Well, kids love it. I mean, kids of all ages. And I've, I've been there many times and I am thrilled and excited every time I go. But then, you know, I'm very much involved in this. Tom is involved and that gets to his academic specialty. He's so knowledgeable about geology and history that it's easy to forget that his career was mostly focused on soil science and reclamation of polluted sites. Tom has been part of a few of these reclamation efforts on lead mine waste piles. I, I might add, too, that like there have been a couple of, uh, of major reclamation projects. Uh, one is the Mineral Point Roaster Waste, which was consolidated and capped. And so that took care of the acidic problem. The other was at the Schulzberg Mining Complex, where a um, you know a 40 or 50 acre site of tailings was sloped and revegetated, and I've had the good fortune of working on both of those those projects, and uh, and so they've they've been stabilized and I guess reclaimed, and in both instances, you know, you've got native grasses and trees on on uh, both sites and. So again, to the unobserving eye, a person could travel right by it and not know what it is. This is the irony. I suppose irony is the right word. The irony of the world under our feet. It shapes so much of the world around us, so much of our history, yet it's super hard to notice unless you know these stories, like the ones we tell on this podcast. But it's important to know these stories, like lead in Wisconsin, because the past is never truly past. Be it the deep past of geologic time or the historical past of the last few centuries, we live in the shadows, echoes, and reverberations of the worlds that came before us, and we make our decisions not in a vacuum, but surrounded by this context. So to make informed choices about our society or about our future, we can't forget about the world under our feet. Thanks for joining us on yet another jaunt through geologic and human history here on Under Our Feet. If you are moved by the story, go ahead and check out our website at uofpod.org, where you can find a link to support our show with a Patreon subscription. Just a dollar a month gets you in the door, and rewards like bumper stickers start at just $3. Thanks to the 10 of you that are already a part of our community. Also, share this podcast with family and friends, or on social media. Let the world know. The more people know about our geologic stories, the better off we'll all be. Thanks to Tom Hunt for that interview. You might even hear a little bit more from him in a future episode about Wisconsin soils. And thanks, as always, to the American Geophysical Union. I had a great time meeting most of you in person at the AGU fall meeting. Learn more about them at agu.org slash sharing science. 
The music you're hearing is the song Arizona Moon by Blue Dot Sessions. I heard that the hit podcast Reveal used a sample from this song too in a recent podcast. They must have good taste over there. Also, thanks to Jeremy Randolph Flagg and Katie Demetz. Come back for the next episode. It's a really special one, and we're going to go beyond lead mining to the rest of the geology and the history of the Driftless Area, the only part of Wisconsin that was never glaciated. <laughs>